Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's time for the Bible. I just can't stay away from that microphone. It's Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek, yet again. And let's get right to some questions. One from David Oliver Smith says, This is a follow-up to my previous email on the possibility that a redactor moves, moved Mark's transfiguration, 9, 1 through 13, to its present location in canonical Mark from where I think it was originally uh, immediately following the return of the twelve six thirty through thirty one thinking more about it, I realized that with that one move, the redactor altered Mark's gospel from clearly adoptionist to merely having adoptionist overtones and screwed up the literary quality of the story by moving the transfiguration to come after the first passion prediction. Uh, 831. In canonical Mark, it looks like Jesus knew all along that he was the atonement savior. But in Mark's original gospel, Jesus didn't know that until the transfiguration, which is about a third of the way through um, the original gospel. Uh, It goes like this. At baptism, Jesus, ordinary man, good guy, special piety, a Nazarene, Uh, is imbued with special powers via the Spirit. He thinks his mission is to preach repentance as John did, 138. This is why I came forth at the Transfiguration. He learns from Moses and Elijah his real atonement mission, and he has to decide to accept it, a moral dilemma. I would compare that, by the way, uh, Dave, to the scene in The Last Temptation of Christ where uh, Jesus is recounting to Judas how the prophet Isaiah came to him in a vision and uh, uh, pointed toward Isaiah 53 in a big scripture scroll and that's when he realized he had to die. Okay. Uh, Now Peter's rebuke at Caesarea Philippi uh, becomes his second temptation when Peter urges him, we can assume, to use his powers to become Jewish Messiah King and not accept the fate of rejection and crucifixion. Hence, get behind me, Satan. This is the second of three temptations. Mark has a lot of threes. I've counted 26 so far. The third temptation is at Gethsemane when he still has a chance to make a run for it. Temptation analysis, thanks to my wife, Barbara, who figured it out. 
further Jesus preaching at 8, 35 through 37, immediately after the temptation by Peter, becomes a soliloquy similar to Hamlet's to be or not to be. Uh, 8.35 For whoever would preserve his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake and that of the gospel will preserve it. Uh, 8.36 For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 8.37 For what should a man give in exchange for his soul? What think of the geek? Well, once again, could be. But boy, this is wholesale reshuffling. But, you know, the same thing has been done with Second um, Corinthians and the Gospel of John. And again, uh, Schweitzer did a similar thing with Mark. Uh, not to the extent you have, but it could be. Um, I just don't know what to make of it. Uh, I, I'm not sure why... It would be in Mark's theological interest to have Jesus only gradually discover his mission. But I guess that's not a fatal objection. I can't wait to see this book you're working on about original Mark. That should be really, really fascinating. What you going to call it? Something like um, the original gospel of Mark, chiasms and interpolations? That would be pretty neat. Anyway, nice going, Dave. Uh, this one is from, I think, Jason, right? Yeah, Jason Quackenbush. He says, I recently read David Trobish's excellent book, first, the first edition of the New Testament, and was pretty much floored by the implications of his argument. It seems to me that if Trobish is correct in his central thesis that the New Testament was anthologized as we've received it in order to demonstrate a unity of the early church... Uh, and that this was done in the late second century at the latest, the implications for the first century church are that the split between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile churches was profound, and that they and um, the differences persisted well into the period after the writing of the canonical New Testament. Otherwise, what's the point of putting together an anthology to show the opposite? The implicit argument that the redactor has to be making is that this division was settled in the past, therefore it should not be rehashed at present, right? That would only make sense if at the time of the redaction such a division was being argued. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's right, between the Marcionites uh, and um, who did the first canon and uh, and the, the Catholics who wanted to retain the, the um, Jewish scriptures as an Old Testament. I wonder if you think this might therefore make for a workable criterion of selection for not only those books and writings which we have in the New Testament, but also those writings which we know of that have not been preserved, such as the writings of Papias, the Epistle to the Laodiceans, or the Gospel of the Egyptians or of the Hebrews, if these documents, although originating from authoritative sources, became deprecated because they were too insistent on a distinction that the canonical edition, as Trobish reconstructs it, proved to be heretical. These writings then were not preserved because they contained inconvenient statements that later church authorities were keen to gloss over. Well, uh, yeah, though, I think uh, I'm convinced by 
uh, R. Joseph Hoffman that we do have Laodiceans, that it is uh, embedded in our so-called Ephesians. Uh, Origen and Jerome still had copies of the gospel according to the Hebrews and didn't seem to think it was really heretical. Uh, Eusebius, writing in the 4th century, mentions that, that even in his day there was uh, doubt about what should be considered canonical and that some of the works um, were uh, like the gospel according to the Hebrews, the apocalypse of Peter and so forth, which must still have been around, were uh, kind of innocent, though not uh, to be considered part of the canon, the Shepherd of Hermas would be another one. Origen thought it was an inspired New Testament book, but uh, later Eusebius tells us that there were different opinions on that. And so, um, whereas there was there was another category that uh, he just called heretical forgeries, and that would include the great number of Gnostic texts written under the name of an apostle. Um, that they, how did he know there were forgeries? Well, because that uh, he he liked what uh, I'm sorry, he did not like what they had to say, so they couldn't actually have been by Thomas, Philip, etc. How did he know that um, the epistles and the gospels were truly written by the people whose names by then were on them? Well, because he did like the content. Uh, it was really just a uh, can uh, apostolic authorship was really a fictive corollary of the orthodoxy criterion if you like what it said it was apostolic if it didn't it wasn't uh, um, but yes these divisions uh, were were active for a good while I have another question about this relating to the figures of Simon slash Peter slash Simeon slash Cephas uh, John slash the beloved disciple and Jude slash Judas and now they may or may not have been conceived as the family of Jesus and therefore the Jerusalem pillars but I want to see what you have to say on this point before I ask it still any thoughts you have about the family of Jesus stuff which I know of partially from reading Burton Mack and Robert Eisenman would be appreciated um uh, let me see. Uh, uh, and also, is there any further reading along with Trobish on the subject of manuscript criticism or redaction criticism that you'd recommend? I've read Trobish's Letters of Paul book as well and really like the way his approach is able to fill in information about the way that the people who put these codices together were thinking about the text they contain. Well, you know, there are the classic redaction critics... Um, there's this great uh, three-author collection uh, by Gunter Bornkam. Um, 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 uh, oh, boy. It's Bornkam, Bart, and Held. I think it's Joachim Held, H-E-L-D. And I forget which Bart, B-A-R-T-H it is. It's, it's not uh, Gerhardus. It's not Carl. It's not Roland. B a r t h e s. Maybe it is a. Maybe it's Gerhard Bard. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, the book is called Tradition and Interpretation in Matthew. Uh, let's see. Um, there's Norman Perrin's little intro. What is redaction criticism from Fortress Press? 
Uh, there's Vili Markson, M-A-R-X-S-E-N, uh, Mark the Evangelist, and maybe the greatest of all of them, Hans Konzelman, C-O-N-Z-E-L-M-A-N-N, The Theology of St. Luke. There are others. And, uh, oh, uh, what's the guy's name? I can see the book, but not the author's name here. Uh, Recovering the Teaching of the Evangelists from Westminster Press. I can't see it. Anyway, uh, uh, that sort of summarizes the whole thing. As for the uh, the matter of the canon and uh, scribal redaction, you can't uh, beat Bart Ehrman's great book, First Thing By Him I Ever Read, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. I believe misquoting Jesus is a kind of... Uh, uh, popularized version of that, and it's okay, but I, I would recommend the, the uh, more detailed, though by no means obscure, uh, book of the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. That That's really very fascinating. Also, on the hypothetical prehistory of the Gospels, uh, the uh, book of essays by um, James M. Robinson and Helmut Kester, uh, trajectories through early Christianity is is pretty great. I think Burton Mack's work is kind of a continuation of that. What about the family of Jesus? There were people that either claimed or were later claimed to be the uh, blood relatives uh, of an earthly historical Jesus, whether there was such a Jesus or not, uh, this would have been what uh, Stauffer called the caliphate of James. And uh, I, um, I, I'm not, I think that there was such a group of, of people, but um, whether the link with a historical Jesus is sound or whether it is a theological fiction like uh, um, link between Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, we'll never know. Uh, yet, the notion of a caliphate of the closest relatives of Jesus as his successors certainly does fit a historical pattern that you see in modern cases like um, uh, the Nation of Islam, um, after Elijah Muhammad, you have uh, the succession dispute between Warith Dean Muhammad, his son, and his lieutenant, uh, Louis Farrakhan. In Mormonism, you got the, uh, the, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints led by Joseph Smith's uh, son, as opposed to the regular old Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints headed up by... Uh, um, the apostles uh, that uh, followed him. And earlier than this, in Islam, who's going to be the caliph? Uh, should it be Ali, the adopted son and cousin of Muhammad, sort of like Tony Soprano and Christopher Moltisanti? Or um, should it uh, be his companions, Uthman, Abu Bakr, and uh, Umar, and so on? Uh, and this would look so much like that. It's, to me, the best argument for a historical Jesus. Um, so there was such a group, but uh, it's there seems to be a little confusion, I think, in Julius Africanus over the claimed basis for their authority. And it says that they based it on genealogies, which kind of sounds like 
uh, wandering supposed Jewish priests, Juvenal and others mentioned, uh, who uh, claimed um, priestly credentials because of priestly genealogy, such as we find in First Chronicles. But um, uh, if that is the case, that means that the claim to be descended from... um, well, to be the blood successors of Jesus would then be uh, a later theological fiction to strengthen the claim when nobody really cared about the priesthood anymore. But hard to say, but I'd recommend those books. All right, I can't pronounce this one. J-A-C-Q-U-E and another E with an accent. Jackie or Jackie, again, forgive my ignorance, uh, in New Mexico. She says, I always wanted to learn more about the culture and history behind the story in Genesis chapter 34. It starts out with a rape, which some scholars sort of hand wave away as simply a little premarital sex, while others think it was a violent act. And then it ends with two teenaged boys, Simeon and Levi, uh, killing all the men in an entire city, Shechem, in one day. Call me skeptical, but that sounds a little extreme, even for teenaged boys. It reads a lot more like an urban legend than history. Could you please explain what the story meant at that time, or why they would tell this story, and give your views on the story? Well, it certainly is fiction, though there is an element of plausibility in it, in that there's this trick. The guy that rapes Dinah, the single daughter of, uh, of Jacob... He says, you know, I'm sorry I did that. I just couldn't control myself. I love Dinah so much, and I would like to make it official by marrying her. Is that okay? And so Simeon and Levi, two of her brothers, say, well, uh, all right, we're willing to let bygones be bygones, but if you're going to marry into our family, you got to take the, the sign of circumcision. Uh, and uh, if you're willing to do that, okay. And you and your whole t- city... And he says, well, you know, like, uh, as the prince, so the people in matters of religion. And so they do it. And uh, it is so painful that they're just lying around groaning all day. And Simeon and Levi sneak into the town and just go from house to house, killing them all uh, in revenge. Eh, That's a pretty good way of explaining how they could get to the mall and kill them. It still seems a little on the exaggerated side. But what is the story originally about? Well, let's uh, let's ask a, a real new uh, Old Testament scholar, the great Hermann Gunkel, one of the fathers of form criticism. And uh, here's what he says in his introduction to his great commentary on Genesis. This is... Uh, published in its entirety, but I'm, I'm reading this from the introduction published as a separate volume many years ago, The Legends of Genesis, The Biblical Saga and History, Hermann, Hermann with two N's, Gunkel, G-U-N-K-E-L. Uh, let's see. Mm. Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, is seduced by Shechem. Uh, And in punishment, Shechem is treacherously assaulted by Dinah's brothers. Jacob, however, abjures the brothers and curses them. 
The history at the bottom of this is probably as follows. Dinah, an Israelitish family, is overpowered by the Canaanitish city of Shechem and then treacherously avenged by Simeon and Levi, the most closely related tribes. But the other tribes of Israel renounce them and allow the two tribes to be destroyed. Uh, That is... uh, one of Gunkel's um, uh, ethnological myths, right? He's, I think I've gone over this before. He said that uh, a lot of these stories, especially in Genesis, have individual characters doing this and that. But what the story is really about is it's like a kind of political cartoon accounting for the present-day relations of nations and tribes and clans by symbolizing these groups as individual founders of those groups. Eponymous ancestors, they're called, right? You get usually the name of that person, Shechem in this case, uh, is uh, really the name of the, uh, the people you're talking about. So that this would be another one of those, that there was a legend or a memory or whatever of um, the tribe of Dinah getting uh, despoiled or destroyed or whatever by Shechem, the Canaan, uh, Canaanite group, and uh, a treacherous, vengeful wipeout by the tribes of Simeon and Levi uh, without the consent of the other tribes, and that uh, they then kicked them out or destroyed them, sort of what you have with uh, the tribe of Benjamin getting it in the book of Judges. Uh, That's the best uh, I can do. I mean, uh, I guess there's other possibilities, but the notion is, no, as a story of these handful of individuals and the townsmen it's uh it's fiction but it is a fictionalized version of uh, an ancient uh, military uh imbroglio ah oh, that's kind of long uh and but i think we can get through it I would appreciate, folks, if you could not make them real long. I guess it doesn't matter a whole lot. I mean, the shows are more or less the same length, but I'd like to get some more questions in. But this one is from Catherine Mather, or as I like to say it uh, with the appropriate Scottish accent, Mather. I love the guy who was the head of the Golden Dawn, McGregor Mathers. Boy, it's great. Uh, Here's an observation about the Habermas Lycona Craig four facts proof of Jesus' resurrection about which you yourself write so ably. (laughs) This note is too long and non-questionable to read on the Bible Geek, but I hope the idea interests you. Um, Now, okay, she, right, uh, Catherine realizes this is a bit long, but I... Since you wrote it, I think I do want to read it. So, you know, uh, I'm not really criticizing her when I say, could you keep them shorter? Uh, she knew that, and uh, I, I'm reading it uh, anyway. So it's interesting. Uh, you know what? Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure this will come out, what these four facts are, right? Well, everybody agrees that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? And everybody agrees the women disciples came looking for the body. I mean, there's no dispute about that. And everybody knows that the temp- tomb was empty, right? So, you know, given that, what's the outcome? And that's basically that argument, though I'm leaving one of the four out. Um, 
Uh, as uh, Habermas, Lycona, and Craig put it, all historians and scholars agree that Jesus was crucified, okay, that's the first one, and buried, and his tomb was empty, and the apostles saw him afterwards. Those historical facts cannot be explained as myth, which takes 17 generations to develop. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, or by a swoon, or they stole the body, or hypnosis, or mass hallucination. Scientifically, the best explanation of the four facts is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. It occurs to me the facts can be explained by something I've never seen the Habermas Lycona crew challenged with. Hoax? Although they do, you know, often mention this hoax or history thing. Uh, for example, it is possible Jesus was a flim-flam prodigy discovered out in the sticks by a big city grifter named, say, Iosef uh, Elranos Habardes. Iosef on his chariot license. Elron to his friends. I think you know who's intended here. Uh, when folks asked, Elron told them he was from Arimathea. The truth is he grew up in downtown Alexandria near the temple of Isis Plusia. Little Elron started at, uh, stared at the gold and silver offerings stacked in the temple and they got him thinking. He told his friends the way to get rich was to start your own religion. You know, this is pretty close to the facts. Uh, Elrond came across Jesus healing, <laughs> healing Hicks in Galilee and saw the graceful, effortless way he separated rubes from their money and figured he could ride this kid to, e <laughs> to Easy Street. Elrond traveled through the country with Jesus, honing his skills at healing, fortune-telling, and pinochle, teaching him... Uh, the Spanish prisoner, the glim drop, and the son of man. The kid was good. Elrond made him better. Some say it took one year, some say three, but finally the kid was ready, and Elrond brought him up to Jerusalem to run a con on the money boys in the temple. But one of the Levi priests was a Ganif who tumbled to the swindle. The con went south. The kid was arrested. His other accomplices ran, but Elrond stuck around, paid a bribe, and got Jesus released. As it happened, the Romans that week executed several people. One was a drifter named Br'er Rabbits. Uh, Elrond palmed a slave a silver shekel, took the drifter's body, wrapped it, and carried it ostentatiously across town to his own family tomb. Elrond slid the body into a crypt, the one on the left. Then Elrond let out around town that he had retrieved and buried the dead corpse of the recently arrested and executed wonder worker, Jesus. Jesus, proclaimed Elrond, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, Elrond took his mistress, Mary Nara, and her friend Pancetta to the family tomb. He pointed to the crypt, the one on the right. It was empty. Later that evening, Jesus appeared in person to some of his followers. The rest is history. Actually, not quite history. The rest is history, as J. L. Ron Hubbard told it to the Rubes and wrote it in his book, Dianoeticos, um, for the intellectual, for the intellect. You see why I'm reading this? Edited and expanded, the book was reissued some years later as The Gospel of John. 
A couple of things. First, yes, the story is silly, and yes, I know nothing anyone says will unconvince the Habermas Lycona Craig crew. But as long as the four facts folks are pooping in our sandbox, we may as well use the best shovel we can. I think the more you experiment with the hoax explanation, the more you'll see there's a lot it can do. Four facts proof of the resurrection wise. Obviously, the hoax explanation does not say the Elrond story is true. It says that some hoax is more likely than that the laws of nature were suspended, which is what would have to happen for a guy to rise from the dead. That's right. You know, no matter how unlikely is a supernatural resurrection more likely. Uh, in the lingo of the four facts, a hoax has great explanatory power. The short time between the events and the New Testament reports is exactly what the hoax explanation would predict. Hoaxes don't need 17 generations to develop. Of course, neither do myths. Of course, the tomb was discovered by women whose testimony would not be believed. The hoaxer put in that detail because he didn't want these witnesses' testimony ever to be cross-examined. Of course, no one refuted the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection by showing people the occupied tomb. There was no reason to check an empty tomb. Jesus was walking around, or if people checked the tomb, it was empty. What got faked was not the resurrection. What got faked was the crucifixion and burial. Yeah, yeah, but how do you fake a crucifixion? Easy. You just say it happened, because it really didn't happen. No one... <laughs> Could have been there to see it not happen. No one can say, I was at the crucifixion and there wasn't one. Or if a skeptic said, I was up at Golgotha on Passover and I didn't see Jesus crucified, the hoaxer would say, oh, you're thinking of the day of Passover. No, no, Jesus was crucified the day before Passover. A hoax has great power. That's the difference between the synoptics and John, right? A hoax has great power to explain the gospel's discrepancy about the day of crucifixion. Or it may be people did refute the crucifixion resurrection hoax. Lots of people. But disproving a hoax doesn't stop a hoaxer. As with Mormonism or Scientology or a Nigerian email, a scammer doesn't need every person to be fooled, only some of them. If there really had been a resurrection, an earthquake, a darkness, a torn veil, and dead saints walking, then all Jerusalem would have been converted. The fact that all Jerusalem did not convert is best explained by a hoax that was refuted. Is all this silly? Yes, but only because the four facts nonsense is silly. I think the real power of the hoax explanation is that it honestly and correctly recaptures the facts. The fundamental observable fact about the New Testament is not the empty tomb. The observable fact is that an old religious book says the tomb was empty. What is more likely, that the amazing, marvelous miracle stories in a religious book actually happened, or that they did not happen, but a religious huckster, or some sincere but mistaken religious fanatics, said they did? In summary, two likely explanation of the explanations of the Habermas Lycona Craig's four facts are hoax or sincere religious mistake. Second question, who founded Christianity? 
playing with the fantasy of Joseph of Arimathea being a hoaxer who faked the crucifixion, I realize I've never read a theory of Christian origins that considered the movement to have been founded by either one, an insincere innovator, or even two, a person other than Jesus. Well, you know, actually, Hermann Samuel Rimaris in the 18th century uh, charged the disciples with a hoax that uh, Jesus was a sincere preacher of uh, the soon coming kingdom and revolution against Rome, but he failed, he was killed, and the disciples said, gee, we got this movement here, it's a shame to let it go to waste. Uh, what say, let's uh, tell everybody Jesus rose from the dead and we'll start a religion and make a lot of money, just like L. Ron Hubbard. So, you know, that has been suggested now. Yeah. Um, the religions I, back to Catherine, the religions I know about, Mormonism, Scientology, Baha'ism, Manichaeism, Islam, Protestantism, Methodism, etc., were each founded by charismatic personality. Uh, a person, a founding executive who formalized a theology and directed the formation of the institution. The orthodox understanding of Christian origins sees Jesus as the founder, but this must be for devotional reasons. The facts don't fit the theory. The orthodox story has Jesus dying before the theology was set and before the institutions were organized. Acts is fiction. The stories about Peter are legends. The non-devotional scholarship I've read assumes Jesus was the founder, but doesn't explore how that worked. We read that Jesus was a magician, a messianic prophet, a myth, a mushroom, or something, probably involving the letter M, but we don't read that he was an executive structuring religious institutions. It's been a while since I read this, but Burton Mack writes about worship groups at Antioch, quote, coming to believe, unquote, Jesus was divine. But this fails to explain who spent the time and money and energy it took to cause groups in Antioch to know and care about Jesus in the first place. Yeah, that, that is a real interesting point. And of course, you know, the Orthodox, especially Catholics, like to point to uh, what is it, six, chapter 16 of Matthew, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That is so atypical for the Gospels. It's long been marked as an anachronistic attempt to uh, father the institution of the church onto Jesus. So, you know, if that didn't happen, it seems like it didn't, then what did? That's a tough one. Uh, even uh, pretty radical critics like Vreda argued that Paul was the second founder of Christianity, that he came into something and changed it a great deal. Uh, kind of like Mahavira came into a long tradition and somehow put his own stamp on it and is therefore considered the founder of Jainism, but you might call him the second founder of Jainism. Uh, Vardhamana was already teaching similar things. Anyhow, um, yeah, so... What does non-devotional scholarship have to say about Christianity's founding executive? Well, um, Burton Mack gets around this, uh, qu I mean, quite plausibly, by saying it was a gradual 
coming together of various Jesus movements and Christ cults, which did not have a common origin. There was no big bang of the resurrection or anything else. And therefore, there needn't have been a, uh, a single founder. And he compares it to the, uh, the various versions of the Attis cult. Uh, somehow they were all... Uh, derived from a, a myth about Attis, a dying and rising God, but we really don't know who started it. Uh, and uh, or, or there are other cases like uh, Krishna. Uh, he's sort of discussed as if he were a religious founder, but there's really no chance he existed. And the same with Moses. It's uh, kind of some of these things are lost in antiquity. We don't know where they came from. Uh, what does the Jesus myth theory have to say about Christianity's founding executive? Well, the closest thing would be what uh, um, Arthur Drobs, or Drebs, or however you say it in Dutch, uh, wrote in uh, Witnesses to the Historicity of Jesus and um, the Christ Myth, where he said that the idea of a historical Jesus came about for institutional reasons, that a bunch of the Christian bishops decided that to get a good pedigree, they had to claim that they weren't just having visions of a heavenly entity like Gnostics claimed, uh, but that no, they were following teaching given by a historical founder. Uh, you know, if you didn't go that way, you could just be making it up as you went, and they figured that's what Gnostics were doing. But uh, they may have done the same thing, uh, but they decided, okay, if we say there was this recent man who taught this and that we were taught by the people he taught, that kind of gives us a copyright on it. So in a sense, I would say those people, though we don't know who they were, uh, would have been the institutional founders of what became Christianity. Never thought of it that way. I appreciate your asking that. Have you or other scholars explored the possibility that the founding executive was an insincere opportunist along the lines of Lucian's Alexander the False Prophet or Joseph Smith or L. Ron Hubbard? Uh, I don't know if anybody has done that or not, but I tend to think that's almost a uh, an irrelevant point because... It's hard to deny Joseph Smith eventually came to believe in the product he was selling. Uh, he must have believed himself to be a prophet and, and near messianic king. Um, I think uh, Madame Blavatsky, I mean, she was just the crassest kind of hoaxer, but she was also a learned and charismatic woman that started the Theosophical Movement. Uh, and and I've I've done a I did an article once uh, called uh, Joseph Smith liar lunatic or Lord where I gave a whole bunch of historical precedents for people that seemed kind of mischievous and uh, and uh, like they were pranksters and I say that they had the essence of a mythological trickster figure. And I tried to explain uh, what they were doing by reference to Jung's notion of the inflation of the archetype and so on. So it's not, a, it's not really an either-or thing, actually, I think. Um, uh, so you have you or others explored the possibility that the Apostle Paul was the L. Ron Hubbard of his day. Um, 
The closest I can think of would be the late great Haim Maccabee in his book The Myth Maker, where he pretty much revives the idea of Paul as the second founder of Christianity, and that he sees him as a, a bit of a fabricator. Uh, and uh, I, I, I disagree with the way he gets to that. I mean, it's not impossible, but if you're to trust anything in the epistles, and I'm not saying you should, this guy would have gone through an awful lot of grief uh, if, that's, if he was just trying to make a buck out of it. Um, but uh, I don't know if anybody who is, is really studying it would say that. I, I, to me, it's the pie is cut differently to begin with because I, I don't think we really know anything about the historical Paul, assuming there was one. I, I think that Bauer and others were right that Paul is another name for Simon Magus, who was a kind of a Rasputin figure. Um, but it, it is a tricky business. Um, thanks, Catherine. Pretty fascinating, pretty funny. I always like that combination. Here's Dale from Gordon-Conwell, who, as I say, may or may not be Dale Gribble. I mean, he, you know, last we heard of him, he lived in uh, Arlen, Texas, but who knows? Maybe he uh, got sick of the heat and moved up there. I've always wondered about the statement concerning John that... The le- oh, what is it? Who are we talking about? The, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is, Matthew eleven eleven. I recently read a Marcion expert suggesting that Jesus is saying that while John may be the greatest prophet of the Demiurge, the lowest follower of Jesus is greater than the greatest follower of the Demiurge. Do you think that this Marcionite concept can really lie behind these words? Well, actually, that would make sense of it. It's not the only thing that would, but uh, think of the statement uh, in Matthew and Luke where Jesus says, uh, no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What? 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 Uh, Moses didn't know God? The prophets didn't know God. I mean, Moses, come on. It actually says in Numbers and Deuteronomy that God would talk to Mo face to face as a man shoots the breeze with his friend. Surely the writer of the uh, of the stuff knew that. And so you, you almost have to think this was a Marcionite saying. They're saying, uh, yeah, I got news for you. You think people have known God, the real God, but, but the, the one you should be interested in is my father, whom none of you know. That's why he sent me to reveal him. This would kind of fit the same way. Uh, and uh, I, I tend to understand it in a different manner, but that is perfectly plausible. I tend to think it is a um, just a Christian um, addition onto this saying to put John in his place, because as it stood, whether Jesus said it or not, it gave too much to John. And uh, in the polemical context where Christians were vying for the same audience as the John the Baptist sect who thought he was the Messiah, uh, the light of the world, uh, the the uh, John sectarians could say, hey, look, Christians, 
your own guy says that uh, of men born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. Well, it's kind of got to imply the speaker himself, doesn't it? So as we say, John is superior. Well, Christians didn't like that. A lot of the anxiety over the uh, baptism of Jesus by John and the way that story kept changing is due to the same problem. And uh, so somebody had uh, somebody penciled in. Um, yeah, nonetheless, the the, uh, the laziest, lousiest Christian is is still higher than than John the Baptist, uh, and I, that's what I think that there's a. Uh, uh, that that it was an early correction, so to speak, the kind of thing Bart shows with manuscript evidence in later cases in um, uh, the Orthodox corruption of Scripture. That's not one of them. There isn't any. Well, actually, there is some kind of. I think it's in the Gospel of Thomas or something. There is a version of the saying without what I'm saying is a corrective P.S. Speaking of this kind of stuff, uh, Kevin from Colorado says, I often hear it pointed out that we don't have any original copies of New Testament manuscripts, just copies of copies. This always makes me wonder how we would recognize an original copy if we did find it. Can you offer any ideas? I'm sure style, grammar, spelling, and other such clues would help us date one manuscript as earlier than others. But is there any way to tell... um, that we have the original. Are you saying maybe we do have it? Or are you saying could we ever know if we had it if if a candidate for it was discovered? I think there'd still be a lot of debate even if a very early manuscript were discovered. And oddly enough, the thing that would make it likely to me that we have at least something earlier would uh, make it dubious in the eyes of conservatives. That is, if you found some uh, an edition of the Pauline Epistles that didn't have the... Um, passages that Margaret Barker identifies as subsequent interpolations or William O. Walker Jr. or various others. Uh, they, they don't have copies that are early enough, so they have to go from internal evidence, like this kind of looks like somebody has penciled it in and all that, like I was just saying. Um, th- but if you found uh, an early manuscript that actually matched up to that, uh, that would indicate to me we've got something a lot nearer the original, but you know what would happen, right? The apologists would say, well, this is just a defective copy, the result of sloppy uh, copying and all that. But that would be a criterion. I don't know if anything would prove that you have uh, the... Um, the original, like, well, here's another thing that uh, might be a sign. If you had uh, any, like Galatians or any of these other Pauline epistles where it says, see what large letters I make signing this, that's the mark of authenticity. That's, uh, suppose you found uh, Galatians that didn't have that, but did have a large lettered signature on it, uh, that would be a pretty good argument that you had the original there. Uh, But other than that, it's really hard to say. All you could ever really show was that, okay, this is earlier than the ones we've had. Maybe that'll still happen. Sure hope so.
Okay, thanks, Kevin. Very, very good question. And I know know what you're thinking. Very, very mediocre answer. Could be. Um, uh, Dan Mangum uh, from Tigard, Oregon. I think that's right. He coached me on how to say it once, but I'm not sure I remember. Oh, great godless geekiness. I have a question about the term mythicist. It seems like the term is used exclusively for those who do not believe or are not convinced that a person named Jesus actually existed. What term should be used, however? I'm sorry, what term should be used, however, for those that think that such a person probably existed, yet most of the stories about him are mythical? Huh. I'll just uh, interrupt for a second. I wouldn't use mythicist for that because the special point of mythicist is you're saying Jesus is nothing but a myth. There was no historical basis to it. Uh, for um, somebody that thinks almost all of it is is uh, is fictitious, but it's based on a real man, I, I would say you'd, a more generic term like a radical critic, like Bultmann or, or Strauss, uh, would be uh, that'd be a decent term. Uh, it's it's uh, a little more loaded than New Testament scholar or even New Testament critic, but radical critic would fit that. Okay, back to the um, Dan. He says, Bart Ehrman recently posted in a blog, August 8, 2015, that biblical mythology could be defined as, quote, ancient religious world, as an ancient religious worldview that involves the being and actions of God or gods that does not cohere with reality as we today know it. Uh, principle of analogy and stuff, right? In this blog, he was discussing 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and the ancient belief of a three-story universe, a flat earth, God up above and dead people down below. He says this is clearly a myth. Uh, let me just pause again. Some people, w- I think Bultmann would say said that too, but some have pointed out, and this may be a valid distinction, that that isn't exactly a myth. That's just uh, early natural philosophy, uh, early pre-science, you might say, because uh, it was observation of the world that made people think made them infer this is the way it was set up though of course they were mistaken they there was no way they could really know whereas Bultmann does distinguish myths as stories of god or the gods that objectify the divine that uh, make god uh, a character breaching the cause and effect nexus an acting person analogous to us but 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 mightier like Zeus and uh, he says that when you have miracles uh, that's myth because it's uh, it violates the cause and effect nexus from without but in another sense it's not violating it because it pictures God as another character like us uh, intervening like we might intervene uh, in a dog fight or something. Okay, Fido. Okay, Rover. Uh, everybody step back. Still basically on the same plane. Um, so that's a helpful way. You're objectifying the divine by placing it in uh, in quasi-human terms. 
Yeah. See, uh, I recently asked Dr. Ehrman about this point and specifically asked him what percent of the New Testament stories on Jesus did he think were mythical. He responded as follows. And by the way, I am not going to try to imitate Bart Ehrman. I've never heard him speak and I... uh, I'm afraid it would be disrespectful. So, uh, my view is that there is a stark difference between sta- between saying that stories about Jesus in the New Testament are non-historical and saying that Jesus is a myth. Much of what people think today about Socrates or, say, the Emperor Caligula is non-historical, but they certainly were real living human beings. Um, that makes sense to me. Right. Okay. Uh, Dan says, I thought this dodged my question, so I followed it up further. I told him that I agreed, but I was still curious what percent... Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, what percent of the stories about Jesus that he thought were very likely myths? He, uh, he responded as follows. I've never tried to calculate a percentage, and I don't know how one would go about it. Hmm, now that's interesting. My buddies at the Jesus Seminar did that and decided that of the stories of Jesus, only about, uh, what was it, 18% of them, I think that was the, the number, uh, were likely historical. Yeah, I, was, I, am, I asked him if he was implying that non-historical stories is his way of saying mythical he would not even go that far, and I found his response confusing. And here's the response. Non-historical does not mean it is not true. A non-historical story can be true in some sense other than history. Um, he finished by saying, I don't think either means mythical. Um, I'm not sure I get that distinction, uh, to tell you the truth, but of course it's just a sentence. He doesn't develop it there. Uh, Like an example of a non-historical story that may yet tell the truth about somebody would be the stories of young George Washington. That uh, he chopped the cherry tree down, shouldn't have done that. His father, I guess, caught him with a hatchet or whatever and said, "Uh, George, you know anything about this? And he says, I cannot tell a lie, I did it. That never happened. How do we know that? Well, because the guy that wrote the story admitted he made it up because he said there was no particular episode that so summed up Washington's character. So it it's a kind of an invented myth that does tell the truth about Washington uh, in a kind of figurative way. And, and that's certainly true in a lot of ways. Uh, Bishop Spong makes a great deal of that. He says with Jesus, okay, granted, most of the stuff's not historically true, but um, you you only tell certain kinds of legends about a certain kind of person, right? It's no accident that Adolf Hitler didn't generate the kind of stories St. Francis of Assisi did, all right? There There is a mythology around Hitler, Hitler the occultist and all that stuff. That kind of fits, right? He's nefarious and infernal and all that. Uh, but you don't have him uh, preaching to birds like you do uh, St. Francis, and conversely, there's nothing about St. Francis leading a pogrom to persecute Jews, right? It's not haphazard. Uh, So that's certainly a good point. Um, I I think that isn't quite what you're asking, though, right? You're not saying that... uh, 
myths or non-historical stories are just lies right and uh, he's he's sort of jumping ahead uh, evaluating the idea of non-historical and and I don't disagree with him uh, but uh, I, I think um, I I agree with you you know what I think that uh, all of them are are fictive uh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping the gun here. Dan uh, Dan goes on. It seems like he's avoiding the point and that it would be easy to calculate a percentage of stories that are mythical, especially if one no longer believes. Um, or those stories that by his own definition do not adhere to reality. All of the miracles can be classified as myths. The stories from the virgin birth to the resurrection can easily be considered myths. Or legends or fictions, I guess you could end. My point is that I don't see much difference between you and Dr. Ehrman or a need to debate the Jesus myth, at least with him. You might be a full mythicist while he is a majority 75% or 90% myth mythicist. What saith the geek? Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I'd say that's true. And this is why a lot of his readers were astonished reading his book, Did Jesus Exist? He says, suddenly you, you think that... Uh, the uh, Gospels are pretty good historical sources, but it sure sounds like in your previous books that you don't. Well, of course, there's no no big inconsistency because he he is just emphasizing the fact that so much of it is historically unreliable. You can't know what you think you do about a historical Jesus. But he's marshalling really different arguments to say, that doesn't mean there wasn't a guy at the base of this, and he thinks there was. Uh, and I think that's that's what we will be debating and, uh, well, about a year from now, I, I gather. And uh, that's, uh, they, uh, that, that's the really interesting thing to me. I mean, he and I take for granted that, yes, Bultmann and these radical critics are right, but were uh, the full-on mythicists right? I think they were. He thinks they weren't. And uh, a good debate. Uh, Phil the Thrill says, I'm listening to a YouTube lecture by Richard Carrier on the Gospels as myth. He goes into nice detail about the chiastic structures of the Gospels and all the little mirrored stories and structures. The implication is that the Gospels are clearly a work of literature, not history. This begs a question for me. Why would someone trying to write a history intentionally do artsy things that expose it as literature? Are we to understand that the Gospels were not intended to be history? Would readers of the day not have picked up on these sorts of poetic devices? Or would legitimate histories written in that era also incorporate these devices? That last part I don't know, though. That'd be a good thing to ask Richard. He, he certainly would know. He's just got this incredible uh, knowledge of all of this uh, ancient literature of all sorts. Um... I want to say, though, that I don't find it unreasonable to suppose that the evangelists knew they were writing documents of faith and weren't that concerned as to whether they could verify a story or whether this or that saying actually went back to Jesus if there was one. I think they were sticking to their story, and the story uh, was what would edify. If you asked them, well, did this happen? I'm not sure what they would say. 
And uh, like even in the Gospel of John, oh yeah, Jesus did loads of other stuff, but uh, this ought to be enough to get you convinced that he's the Son of God so you can have life in his name. Even that, I mean, it's conceivable that uh, he thought these stories would do the trick because they're so heavily symbolic, especially in John. Uh, Like parables getting the point across, it's hard to tell. Uh, John Dominic Crossan thinks that the gospel writers did not intend it to be taken as history. It's hard to say. Uh, um, Barbara Thiering also and uh it, it could be it's it's difficult to uh to be sure of it though sometimes there's a kind of an anxiety like don't tell this to anybody until the son of man is raised from the dead uh, uh they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid these look suspiciously like attempts to say yeah i know you haven't heard this before but it's true anyway uh, and uh, an anxiety to show that it really did happen, though you might all, uh, it anticipates that you're going to be suspicious. That implies they want you to take it as history, though they know it's not. I did a paper for the uh, Society of Biblical Literature called Fraud and Imposture in the New Testament, where I, I say there's a lot of things that we don't think are true that probably were not intended to pull the wool over your eyes, uh, but others uh, probably were. Uh, they were pious frauds, such as still are happening. One example of where I'd say it's improper to call it a fraud, though, is in Matthew, where he gives, where he restores Deuteronomy's ambiguity about divorce by uh, adding to the gospel, saying you find in Mark and Luke, um, if any man uh, puts away his wife and marries another, he causes her to commit adultery. Uh, well, um, Matthew adds, puts away his wife uh, for any cause, may epipornea, except for some sort of sexual impropriety. It's vague on purpose. Did he think Jesus said that? Or isn't he just trying to tighten up and apply the saying because as a ban on divorce, it's proved unworkable in the Christian community. So he's he's amending the text. Uh, I don't think he's trying to get away with anything. By this time, he's just using... Uh, the gospel as a a charter document and it needs to be amended like the constitution has been amended it's no longer really a question of is this history or not and and it's hard to know how far back to go to find when when the writers did think it was history it's uh, it's a mixed bag very uh, very good question phil well that's it for the rain barrel believe it or not i've actually uh sucked it dry here so i'm gonna need you to send in some more questions which i know you will shortly do and once you do we'll get back for another exciting episode of the bible geek what's that about 11 of them this month not bad hopefully i can keep it up okay i'll see you next time The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergin Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, 
purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at AOL.com, and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.